This is God's word. Acts 26, 1 through 32. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began to began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. 
I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor, and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. Heavenly God, you are so full of grace. May we meet some grace this morning from you. As we come in with a variety of experiences and feelings and emotions, and our stories are very different. Some of us come and uh, we're sort of bored this morning, or we're sort of out of touch. We've just been focusing maybe on one or two things excessively, and suddenly this is like very different, and it's hard for our brains and our hearts to adjust into to change our focus on the weekend to something else. And others of us, there's some raw emotions and experiences in the room this morning. There are fears bubbling underneath the surface for some of us this morning. There's self-doubt that has taken over whole parts of our lives. There's anxiety. There's depression. There's hurt, and there's also thankfulness and joy in others. There's people who look at their week and say, there's some good things that happened. Others who say, look at those mistakes or look at the hurts that happened. And God, amidst those experiences, we are all in the same boat. None of us are climbing up the mountain to you, into your arms. All of us are down at the bottom. All of us are more of a mess than we care to admit. We're more broken than we want others to know. And we can't climb as much as we make our life all about climbing up to you or climbing up to the approval of the world around us. We can't. And it doesn't satisfy even when we, when we get a hint of it. Because we need your love to reach down to us. And that is the story talked about in the story we read this morning. And that's a story of your, of your Bible. That's a story of your interaction with our world, reaching down to us into the mess to bring us into your arms. Meet us with that kind of grace today, we pray, wherever we need it. Amen. Antoinette Tuff. That's the name of the Atlantan of the year in 2013. Antoinette Tuff. Atlantan of the year. She was given that award um, as a citizen of Atlanta um, because of how she used, a, she had a weapon that she used in thwarting a school shooting as a 20-year-old, um, his name is Michael Brandon Hill, came into the school office where hundreds of children were in their classrooms 
and he was brandishing um, over 500 rounds of ammunition. And he was ready to, to, you know, to make it happen. He was mad. He was determined. But Antoinette Tuff, from behind the desk of the school office, used her secret weapon to thwart the whole thing and to get him to give up his weapons and surrender to the police. What was it? It was her story. She started talking to him and telling him her story. Um, it's, the article about this that I pulled up says that she, she asked the suspect... Um, Oh, here, no, let me, I got the wrong sheet. Here we go. So this is her talking about the experience. I just started telling him my story and everything I had been going through and how my life began to turn, turn for me last year and how rough it was for me and how I just felt at my low and that nobody loved me. How I had a multiple disabled child and a daughter who was in college and about to go to law school and how I just lost my husband after 33 years and that's the only man I knew since I was 13 years old. I said, look at me. I'm still living. I explained to him that I just, just opened up a brand new business, a motor coach company and a travel agency. I'm getting back out there, and so it's all right. Life will still bring about turns, uh, and we can learn from it in spite of what it looks like. And then eventually, she asked the suspect to put his weapons down and empty his pockets and backpack and lay on the floor. I told the police he was giving himself up. I just talked him through it, she said. <laughs> just talked him through it. Here's what you do. Empty your pockets, put your guns down. So her weapon was her story. You know, I've got a story and I know how to use it. And um, you have a story, but do you know it? Do you really think you have a story? that might get called upon at some point, maybe soon, maybe a long time from now. Do you have a story? Antoinette Tuff um, also models a couple things that, that are also in our story um, from the book of Acts. As Paul is sharing his story, there are two things that she does that are similar, that she believed that she had something, that God was writing a story in her life that needed to be heard, Antoinette Tuff is a Christian, actually, coincidentally. And then, uh, so the first thing is believing that you have a story that God's writing that needs to be heard. And the second thing was that she adapted it to her audience. She kind of hit upon those points that she saw that connected to him and that would help him right where he was at. And Paul does that as well. And we all need to see this, how, um, first of all, that, that we need to consider, stop, and look and say, do I believe that I have a story? Do I believe that, that that's what life is all about, that there's a story being written in my life that is not just for me, but is actually, at the most unexpected times in your story, actually, going to be used and called upon to be shared so that someone can peer into your story for them, not just for you. And the Apostle Paul knows that he has a story. In fact, as you read through this part of the book of Acts, this, this is like... I mean, there's, I thought about all the directions this message could go and all, you know, all the exciting details and background things and we're doing much more of the higher level things so I had to put a lot of things aside this week as I looked at this story because there's so many rapid fire events that as the Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem is, 
is basically surrounded by a mob who starts beating him. And in the course of this, he tells his story publicly twice. And, you know, all our stories are different. And Paul's story had a unique thing going on. All of our stories are different. But the principle is he knew, he was aware there are moments when the story needs to be called upon. And in this phase of the book of Acts, he seems to be really ready, really knowing his story needs to be told. He's beat up by this mob. Um, He's close to death, and a centurion, a guard in Jerusalem, comes and rescues him and trying to figure out what's going on and is taking him to jail, not the people who are beating him up, taking him to jail um, because the assumption is he he deserved it. And then as he's going into the barracks, he, he asks for permission to address the angry mob who was beating him up, and he turns and he tells them the story. He tells them his story. And then again, now he's before a very different kind of crowd, and he's telling his story again. Dignitaries. He knew that he had a story to tell. We often think we don't. And there's all kinds of layers going on there. There's all kinds of things in your life, the reasons why you don't think that you have a story to tell. Um, A lot of them have to do with you don't like where your story is right now. Um, the last chapter of the story, you haven't liked it. Um, and whether or not you're in the mode of like looking up and attributing some of that to God or whether you're just you know, beating yourself up, looking inward, you don't like your story. You think, no. Someone who shares a story is someone who gets, gets to a much better fairy tale kind of place than where I'm at right now or where I've been. And we forget. We forget that you are surrounded by people who are in the same kinds of places, who are in the same kind of darkness, who are in the same kind of place where wishing that doors would open, wishing that life would have turned out a little differently, wishing they didn't feel, uh, wishing they weren't in their dark days, which is how it often feels. We're surrounded by people who are hanging on by a thread or who are at a place wondering, what, am I supposed to take some kind of risk? Should I? Should I take the jump? Should I take the leap? What's next? People who are asking questions about, is it my fault? Did I do that? Why am I here? Regret, wishing I could take this back, wishing I could do something different. You're surrounded by people who think no one will understand. No one will understand the insecurities. No one will understand the abuse. No one will understand my mistakes. No one one will understand where I've been. Anxiety the worry. No one will get it. My story is for when I get through that and talk about something else. And we we have to remember, someone else is writing a story and may call upon you to share for all those people around you who need to hear maybe the just the shred of hope that you have in the darkness or in the insecurity or in the worry. What are you hanging on to? And just be real about the weight of pressure that's working against that shred of hope. So we need to believe that we have a story to tell. I don't have any, I'm not here today to put pressure on you to go out and verbally tell some sort of religious story or spiritual story to someone. You know, I'm not, I'm not looking for you to feel pressure like if you haven't, you should feel terrible about yourself. I'm just saying... Open your eyes to a different way of looking at your life. God is writing a story. 
And as uh, Emily's shirt says back there, your story matters. And it doesn't just matter for you, it matters for others, those around you, who God has placed around you. Watch out for the moments when suddenly you're called upon, when you realize you're around these people and you get a glimpse of their story and they need to hear from you. They need to hear where you've been. That's how God works. Um, Paul also, not only does he believe he has a story, but he also adapts his story to the situations. He adapts the situations. It's lovely to read through this because he's telling his story two times in two very different contexts. The first is he's telling it to a very religious Jewish mob who wants to kill him. Um, And his story, if you read it, comes off basically like saying from beginning to end, there's all these little markers in it. This is from Acts chapter 22, which we didn't read. But in the story all over, it's it's the sense of, "I I was in your shoes, I was in the same place because he was. He was one of those angry Jewish leaders who wanted to end the Christian movement. And so he's able to just keep saying, I get it. And he tries to enter into that spot where they are and say, I was there, now look what happened. And look at why and look at how. Now his story didn't do any good, which I guess there's a lesson there too because by the end they just want to, you know, beat him up even more, and there's a crazy mob. But nonetheless, that he adapts his story. What does he do when he's before King Agrippa? Someone who's in charge of big territories of the Roman Empire happens to be passing through the land and talks to the local governor. And um, King Agrippa is someone who fashions himself as being very knowledgeable about Jewish affairs. And, um, and so he, oh, let's, I'd like to hear from this Paul, who's, who we, we're not really sure why he's in prison or what his case is, but he's appealed to Rome and appealed to Caesar, and he's a Roman citizen, so he can do that. So he's on his way to Rome. How are we going to write up the report on Paul? And King Agrippa is very intrigued by this case and just wants to heat as he's visiting the land. And, and what does Paul do? He's amidst these dignitaries from the Roman Empire, not a Jewish group anymore. And he goes into classic rhetoric style. You know, you've learned, you learn these different speech models if you took a speech class in college. That's what Paul just goes into the classic model of speech because he's a very educated man. He is a Roman citizen as well as this Jewish background, and so he taps into that side. And he, and he gives the classic format of a persuasive speech in, um, in Roman intellectual circles. This is fascinating. He adapts his talk, and he keeps appealing to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa's natural, uh, King Agrippa's sense that he's, he's very intrigued by the Jewish faith and the prophets, and, and he's very intrigued by Jewish affairs, so he keeps kind of poking into that. And King Agrippa feels it. You hear him say, you think you're going to convince me to be a Christian in such short time, which the, the language of that actually, he's being technical. He's using a technicality to push Paul away because Paul hasn't provided very many classical proofs. He's, he's done a short section of the proofs that you would give in a speech. And so he's basically saying, you expect to convince me with such so few proofs? <laughs> and he just kind of distanced himself on a technicality. But you feel him poking in, adapting. And then what does he do? In the one, in the one passage... Um, in chapter 22, eventually what Paul does, and he does this actually in chapter 23, is the Jewish mob gets out of control and he sees there's no hope of them coming along his way and believing him. He talks about the resurrection, but he's very savvy because he knows in the room are people who believe in the resurrection and people who don't. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the joke is the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and so they were sad, you see. 
Um, and it's corny, but it actually helps you remember. But so, so these Jewish groups, right? And, and he knows this. So what he does is he says, it's, it's, in, <laughs> it's in chapter 23. Um, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees, and I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Well, the place goes into an uproar, in a debate, and, and, suddenly, and it kind of gets him off the hook and off the stage because it was going bad. Basically what he does, he knew, he knew exactly what he was doing. So for Paul, resurrection was central, and in one context, that's how he kind of tells his story and uses it effectively. But what does he do with King Agrippa? He talks about it as evidence. He says, I know King Agrippa is not ignorant to these things. This was not done in a corner. And he's referring to what he has just talked about. The resurrection. This was this is public knowledge. People saw Jesus. This is see now. Paul's not trying to get off stage. He's trying to say, this is you. Know, you've heard the stories. You've talked to witnesses. You know that this is not something that people made up. Jesus rose from the dead, and so now he's taking the resurrection and going a whole different way, adapting his story. I think those are two important contexts or helpful tips on storytelling that. Um, in a sense, help us as we think about, you know, do you believe in a story? And are you realize that it's not a, it doesn't have to be a formula. It doesn't have to, you probably come in with some sense, especially if you had a lot of church experience from other places. You come in with some sense of what telling your story looks like in a church setting. I've heard a lot of stories like that. People have a sense of what that means. Take off the grids, take off the formulas and adapt to the situation. I'm going to tell a little piece of a city life story. Um, and I have some slides. They're very minimal. That one I was supposed to show earlier, but I'm learning how to do this. Um, that's Antoinette Tuff. And uh, Michael, the guy that she talked off the, or onto the ground, I guess. You know, City Life Church, is, it's a funny thing because City Life Church has brought for me many points of being at a low and feeling like no story is being written. And Sundays, certain Sundays, we're looking, going home maybe at noon or one o'clock and feeling like, for sure, this is, this is not a story that is being written. There's a lot of difficult low times in the last six to nine years as Lisa and I um, kind of moved ourselves out here. And um, eventually what I started to see was some of the amazing handwriting of God orchestrating this that has helped me through especially the low times and the difficult times. So I'm going to share a little bit of that, the story of City Life Church. Um, I was growing up in uh, Central Valley, California, and that's an hour south of here. I was born in Sacramento and at five years old moved there. When I was... um, a little kid, just a, maybe a year or two after this picture was taken, I was in Ripon, California, in a church basement, and for a few years there, learning songs to sing to Jesus. These two people were playing guitars and leading those songs. Their names were Hans and Carol. And um, I'm just going to say that, and then we'll tie that in later. So I'm, I'm, I grew up in Ripon. I grew up around a lot of church people. I don't really know what it's like to be friends with somebody who's not a Christian. Um, all the way pretty much into, co- into the college years as I go to another small town in Iowa and am again in a small town of almost all church-going people. 
But eventually, uh, I end up in Michigan in seminary, and uh, my wife and I, Lisa, by then, we're, we're married, and I'm in seminary, and we're starting to get this sense that, am I going to maybe be a part of uh, starting a church? Is this what God is putting? Is this the story that I'm supposed to do? I didn't know how to start a church. Um, so we went, started going to a new church while I was in seminary to see what it's like. But we had an idea that... Um, we had an idea that we wanted to stay around the Great Lakes area. We had family, we had friends. We had an even sort of a mission and a story we wanted to write of we'll live by some family, we'll move into a duplex, we'll live in sort of an urban area, and, and I'll be the pastor of a church we'll start, and we'll live in some intentional community kind of situation with family and friends, and we'll be sort of this neighborhood, countercultural love to the city kind of thing. And we had it all figured out. And after applying at six different opportunities to potentially do something like that in the area, we were just exhausted by the search and by every door getting slammed. And we had left one door open, a tiny crack, and that was to come to Sacramento to potentially start a church. And we had pretty much decided we didn't want to do that (laughs) because it went against the story we wanted to write. But we got to the point where Lisa was working me through seminary and, and we had our first child and it was basically like, you know, enough me working you through this time. We need a job. And so when they called up from Sacramento, like the day after the sixth door was shut, then we just said, all right, I guess we're going to Sacramento. There's a ringing endorsement, huh? <laughs> so this is the story that God was writing. Now, that was around 2003. And so we moved to Sacramento. We didn't know what we were doing. And right around the same time, there was um, a couple in New York, New York City, uh, standing in front of a sign for the Village Church in Greenwich Village. And this is Eric and Anna. And um, when I was in seminary and thinking about I wanted to start a church in some kind of urban environment, I, I read something about this person named Tim Keller who was doing that in, in New York City. And I thought, oh, man, it seems like that's exactly the kind of ethos that I want to get experience from and know about and figure out for, to apply to wherever I end up. And then I head to Sacramento, so then it's thinking like, man, too bad I don't have some connection to that. Well, Anna was working in the office of Tim Keller's church, and Eric was uh, playing guitar in a worship uh, group for the first daughter church of Tim's church uh, called the Village Church. And because of 9-11 and how that affected them personally, they ended up saying, you know, it's time to move back to California. And uh, where uh, Eric, Eric was from, the town I grew up in, guess who his parents were? Hans and Carol. And, um, and, and so what happened was, Within six months of each other, we moved back to Sacramento. We moved to Sacramento. We didn't know that we had both moved. Eventually, we find each other after living here for a few months, right around the time when City Life was supposed to start. So we have, uh, we have them bringing a sort of commitment to this, a sort of ethos from exactly the kind of church that I thought would be perfect, and bringing all kinds of gifts to the table and a commitment to help get it started. And I think that's a pretty cool story that God was writing. 
I had no idea. I, I didn't even stop and realize it because the mountain to climb of starting a church was so overwhelming that it was just kind of, okay, okay, great, you guys are helping. Okay, you're hosting things at your house sometimes. Okay, and it was just kind of this, I was in frantic mode. And then after a year or two or three, started to stop and put some of these dots together and just go, oh my goodness, this church wouldn't happen if God wouldn't have orchestrated things this way. Yeah, so what do I want to say about that? I don't know. I don't know what that story is supposed to do for you. What it does for me is just knowing that story and reflecting on the story. Being, I have a card in my in a drawer in my desk that has a list of a whole bunch of things that have happened, or people. Mostly, it's just names of people who have come into city life that I could never have orchestrated, could never have planned, could never have convinced, and they just showed up at the right time for City Life Church to happen and to keep going. And so on the low days, the low times, and it hasn't, I haven't had to pull that card out for a while, but on the low times, I pull it out and I look at it and then I go, oh yeah, that's right. There's a story. I can see it. I didn't do any of that and it all just happened. Um, you look at the Bible, because you still might be saying, oh, my story's, you know, not my story. My story doesn't sound like that. My story doesn't sound like Paul's. In the Bible, you have Rahab being a prominent story, uh, an ungodly foreign prostitute written into the story of God. You have all different kind of stories. Jonah kind of did what I did, didn't want to go where God was going to send him, so he actually went the other way. And then he's mad by the end of the book. You had all these stories. Job, who goes through this time of suffering. You have the, the ten lepers and one of them who comes back thankful. You have um, Peter's story, such an interesting story. You got Thomas's story, the, the doubter. You got Abraham. You have this woman, Dorcas, who's this um, beautiful example of just a humble uh, person going about helping widows in her community in the early church. It's all these stories. What's yours? I put this, uh, you know, we put this question in the worship guide last week. And um, it's funny because I, the question basically said last week, do you think you have a story? And it wasn't asking you guys to, tell your, to write your story down. And I always, you know, I was surprised at how you think of a question one way and then it gets, you know, pe- people were like writing their story out, you know, um, on this card. And I thought, whoa, whoa, this was just a yes or no question, folks. You know, back off with your... <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Um, but uh, one of the, one of the um, answers was Rachel, and I asked Rachel if she'd read it, and she's going to come up, if you wouldn't mind, Rachel, and just read, um, you know, her story. Here it is. So this is what I wrote when um, I apparently misunderstood the... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Um, I said that uh, for 10 years, I smoked pot every day. Um, And after I had two of my children, I started to get more and more guilty and maudlin and depressed every time I smoked pot, which was uh, several times a day. I felt uh, separate from everyone else and like a terrible mother. I felt really isolated. And I would go to the park and think, um, I wonder how many of these moms are also high right now. Um, Maybe Mm -hmm. lots. 
And uh, actually one day when I was at the park, I met Anna. And um, I remember going home and telling my husband that um, I met the only cool mom I had ever met at the park. Um, and when I started going to City Life Church for the first time, she was standing on the front steps. Um, mm. So that was the first time I had gone back to church in about 10 years. And I had tried to stop my addiction over and over, but I couldn't do it myself. Um, and then one day in church, um, someone stood up and there was an alcoholic and gave his testimony. And he was kind of doing the same thing I was doing. He, was, he had been getting away with it. Um, and, um, mm -hmm. and he was a successful doctor. And um, I was so sick of myself and my powerlessness and my relentless striving to appear perfect in the eyes of others to justify my addiction. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, there were lots of things that I did um, you know, to, to uh, kind of buck the stereotype mm -hmm. of a lazy stoner, you know. <laughs> I would smoke pot and then go run three miles, and I would um, be high for every single one of my classes and tests in college and uh, get the honors for my major. Um, mm -hmm. And, but it, I, I knew it, um, even if other people didn't know it, I knew it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, um, I prayed and I asked for help, and I never um, have smoked pot again. Um, the first time that I came to an Easter service at City Life, I, as I walked in, I saw a vision in my mind of um, a hand mm -hmm. outstretched to me, like a helping hand. And um, that really has happened here for me. Um, mm. Yeah. And Thank that you. is my story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. They're very brave. Wow. wow. It takes so much courage to stand up here and talk. Um, thank you, Rachel. People um, needed to hear that today. People, you know, I don't, I don't know whose story is going to connect, but don't you love how uh, Rachel came and heard someone tell their story? And then now she's standing and saying, in fact, she said to me on the phone this week, it would be, it would be um, hypocritical if I said no to you and didn't share <laughs> when my story was shaped by someone else sharing. I don't know whose story you needed to hear this morning, uh, whether it's Antoinette Tuff or whether it's a little bit of my story and City Life's story and Eric and Anna's story or Rachel's story. But just um, walk away today knowing and just at, least, at the very least being curious. What is God writing in your life? And how is there going to be a time, maybe very soon, where others need to be in on it and need to hear it? Let's pray. Our God of grace, um, we thank you for how gracious you are to us in our messes and in our failings and in our brokenness. Meet us this morning, especially as we move towards the table of the Eucharist. Um, may your grace be strong and powerful, whether we're coming forward for it or staying in our seats, um, whether we're in a in a very thoughtful place or a distracted place, may your grace reach out to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.